Good evening. My name is Paul Ramsey. I am also a church planter here at Sojourn Heights, um, uh, which means I'm kind of a pastor in training, preparing to start a new Sojourn church uh, in another neighborhood of Houston, Lord willing, here in the next couple of years. Uh, Today, we are continuing uh, our series through the book of Colossians. This is week three in this series. Week one, we looked at the idea that what you hope in matters. Last week, Brandon preached about how if you do not actively pursue Jesus, you will passively drift from him as he talked about that beautiful passage in which Jesus is established as supreme over all things in heaven and on earth. And then this week, uh, we'll be looking at how in Christ you have all that you need. We just sang that song, All I Have is Christ, uh, hallelujah, Um, and that's good news uh, because in Christ we have all that we need. So um, if this is your first time here, um, if you're visiting with us, you've been a couple of times, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, Like Carlos said, please, um, we invite you to to come join us uh, for dinner afterwards to jump into a parish. Um, And if if you're not a Christian or if you're you're kind of in between, don't really know what you believe, uh, whether you, uh, maybe you have no background in the church, maybe you you grew up in the church and might have left at some point, um, I want you to know that invitation is for you too. Um, uh, We want you to feel welcome here um, and we want you to come step in community with us in the midst of, of any doubts and questions that you might have. Um, as I was thinking about how to start uh, this sermon today, I was struck by, just, by some really amazing stuff that's, that's in this text. Uh, and I want so badly for, for you to hear me say this uh, as we start. You don't have to buy all of this stuff about Jesus, God, and Christianity uh, in order to jump into community with us. Uh, you don't have to. Um, I became a Christian when I was 19 out of a, out of a, out of a home that wasn't Christian. Um, uh, and whatever uh, the reason was, I found myself in Christian community for a couple of years before I became a Christian. Um, I came in with hard questions, um, the kinds of questions that you ask someone that makes them feel really uncomfortable. Uh, but I brought them anyway. I'd ask questions like, um, aren't you a Christian just because you grew up in a Christian home? Uh, or is the resurrection real? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Or is that just kind of a good story? Um, do, do you have to believe the Bible is true entirely uh, in order to be a Christian? Um, and first, uh, uh, you know, for a while at first, I just kind of asked those questions to get reactions. Um, and I usually got the reactions that I was looking for. Usually people would be confused. They'd stumble over some answer. They'd try to shut me down with, you know, some one-liner from the Bible. Uh, but then, uh, kind of to my surprise, I found myself in a group of guys in college, my freshman year of college, uh, who listened to my questions and didn't try to shut me down. Um, they got to know me, and they really tried to give honest answers to the questions that I was asking. And that was the year, uh, by God's grace, that his gospel became my gospel. Um, we want our parishes uh, to be places where you can bring your questions, uh, bring, uh, bring whatever it is that you have on your mind. And we want to wrestle with these real questions, uh, having real conversations about what we think, even if those conversations make us uncomfortable. So please, whether you're a committed member already or whether you're just kind of deciding whether this is a good idea for you to jump into, please jump in and bring your questions with you uh, because we all need an environment which we can wrestle out loud with the things that are going on in our minds. At Sojourn, we want this, uh, and we really need this uh, together. We really do need to be wrestling with these things together because the reality is that in the world today, right, in our lives today, uh, there's a lot of different things that are plausible, 
Right, there's a lot of things that are vying for our attention, vying for our affection, um, be it a religion, a particular expression of religion, a certain set of principles, uh, a, a roadmap to living a good and healthy life, a political party. Um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. As we look around, um, you might have a friend uh, who does, who's doing the, you know, this or that diet, and they try to convince you to do this diet with them, and so you get convinced, and then either you become a convert and you know, start to do it every single year for the rest of your life, or you do it for like five hours, uh, and then find some other more plausible way of being healthy. Um, or you might, you know, we read blog posts about this candidate or that party platform convincing us that this issue is more important than that issue, that this candidate could actually be a better choice because of it. And so we decide, yes, that's definitely who I'm voting for, only to read an equally plausible blog the next day and be thrown back into the state of confusion that we've been in for the past few months. All right, so many things out there are plausible. Uh, and it's hard not to feel like we are simply at the whim of the most eloquent speaker or writer. Our text, I think, is about that this morning. The Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote this letter, uh, says that he's saying what he's saying so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible is a word that means reasonable or probable. Uh, and in a world of conflicting worldviews, ideas, uh, the truth is that we need more than plausibility if we're actually going to put our foot down and be assured of something. We need plausibility, yes, but because there's so many things out there are uh, that are plausible, uh, we need something more than simply plausibility. And I think that what this text reveals to us about Jesus, about God's plan for us, will offer us more than mere plausibility. It's an honor uh, to be here with you this evening, to have been entrusted by the pastors to preach this text, for you to have given a couple of minutes of your time to be with us. And so um, it, it really is an honor. Let's dig in. We'll go through this text, uh, Colossians 1, verses, uh, Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. We'll go through it in three main points. First, uh, the mystery of Christ is made known. Second, we want something else. And third, we need nothing else. So we'll start where our text starts, Colossians 1, verse 24. Uh, let me read a couple of verses together, then we'll look in uh, together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's a lot here. Uh, and as we begin, we'll look, talk just a minute about the author and then jump in and talk about this mystery that he's talking about. First off, the author of this book is the Apostle Paul. Apostle simply means that he received his uh, revelation. He received his call directly from Jesus, um, uh, from Jesus himself. And Paul is writing to a church that he hasn't met. Right, a few year, verses later, uh, after what we just read, he'll say, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Right, so Paul wants, to know, wants them to know how deeply he cares for them, how hard he is working for them, even though he hasn't seen them face to face. And we see that this struggle has involved suffering and affliction. He's been ministering to the church, laboring to make, verse 25, the word of God fully known according to what he calls this stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And we're told what it is that he's been given uh, to give them. Uh, in verse 26, it says, you know, he's been working to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, and now revealed to his saints. 
Uh, so there is this mystery, this thing that was unknown, that was hidden for a long time, which is now revealed, and it's communicating that, that is the task of Paul's ministry. To help, me under, uh, to help us understand this, let's talk a little bit about what a mystery is. I could trace uh, maybe a murder mystery novel and kind of follow the plot, but uh, instead, let's think for a moment about Apple and their iPhones. Uh, I think Apple does mystery really well. Um, Here's what I mean. Everyone knows that Apple is going to come out with a new iPhone, but no one knows when it's going to be released um, or what it's going to look like until the date of its actual release. Um, I looked it up. Here's how the story usually goes. Not that I follow this myself, Um, but here's how it goes. At some point, Apple gives the date of a special event, right? At which point people start wondering, what what are they going to give at this special event? People begin speculating whether the next iPhone will be released at this one or not. One blog will say, definitely there will be a new iPhone. Uh, and then a week later, another blog with you know, some insider scoop will say, nope, definitely not going to be an iPhone, and everyone gets disappointed. But then at some point, uh, some secret documents that are partial documents uh, are revealed uh, that, that have some aspect of the design of this new iPhone in it, and so people start getting excited about the new iPhone. People get to work designing what it will look like and what features will have changed, but all the while, no one actually knows anything uh, about this new iPhone other than the fact that it'll probably be released um, at some point. And when it is released, with some mixture of excitement and disappointment, Apple fans rush to the nearest Apple store uh, to get this new revolutionary piece of communication technology. Um, I think you get the picture. Mystery builds anticipation for some sort of anticipated resolution. Um, And it's not necessarily what happens uh, that is fascinating, it's how it happens that is fascinating. For example, the what is not usually surprising. The, I, the fact that another iPhone is coming is not mysterious, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's how it gets released. What are the features? What, it's, what, what does it look like? That's the part uh, that's really surprising. So when Paul uses the word mystery here in our text, he uses it intentionally. Uh, he's essentially saying this story of redemption that's now revealed to you in Christ is like a mystery. God's people Uh, The Jews, Israel, had known that God had promised redemption for sin, and they'd gotten clues along the way. They'd been kind of coming up uh, with all kinds of guesses about how God would bring this about. Um, So what about God's plan was a mystery? What did did God's people know, and what what needed to be revealed? At the time of Jesus' arrival, they they were, like I said, already waiting for the arrival of their Savior, their Messiah. God's servant, as he was called, was the one who would save them, bringing to completion God's promise of salvation. The fact that the Messiah uh, would procure salvation for his people was not a mystery. Uh, This wasn't news for them. Um, The fact that their sins would be completely dealt with was also not a mystery. They knew that was going to happen. The fact that the rest of the world would receive blessing through this Messiah, the ministry of this Messiah, was also not a surprise. They knew that they were going to be the nation through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Um, And so that wasn't new news. Essentially, they knew knew what was going to happen. Uh, What they didn't know was how God was going to do it. Um, And here's, here's, here's the how. Let me kind of kind of jump in and explain using something that you might be familiar with. If you're uh, at Sojourn, we say this. Um, if you've been to a church that takes communion every week, usually at some point during communion, uh, uh, the church will say something along these lines. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. At Sojourn, uh, we don't use the word mystery. We say we receive the sacrament as the sign and seal of our faith, but we're talking about the same thing. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So let's look um, at each of those statements briefly. Uh, First, that their Messiah was to die uh, was new news 
uh, for God's people. God had told his people through prophets hundreds of years before Jesus that the Messiah was going to come and that he was going to suffer. Uh, but they, <clears throat> even though they knew he was going to suffer, they didn't know that he was going to die. In Matthew 16, we read the story of when Jesus uh, and his followers, when Jesus told his followers that he was going to die. And this was kind of a turning point uh, in his ministry. His followers had been excited about Jesus. He had been doing <clears throat> all these incredible signs and wonders and miracles to, to testify that he was actually the one sent from God. And his followers were excited he was going to deliver them. And then he turns to them and says, I need to go to Jerusalem because I'm about to be killed. And on the third day, uh, I'll rise again. Here's what, his, here's what his followers did not say uh, when he said that. They didn't, they didn't respond with, yes, great, Jesus. We were planning for you to get killed. Let's go to Jerusalem. That's not what they said. Uh, just the opposite. Uh, the Apostle Peter, who is one of the, the 12 in Jesus' inner circle of his disciples. Apostle Peter heard Jesus say this, and then he said, okay, hang on, guys. Jesus, he didn't mean to, see, he didn't mean to say that. He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says, Jesus, you're not supposed to die. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to do that. It was new news that, that the Messiah was to die. Christ has died. Christ is risen. The next new thing was that Christ was to rise again. When Jesus said he was going to die, he followed up that statement right away by saying, on the third day, he would be raised, right? We know that they didn't know or expect this because at that point, people started shaking their heads, saying, no, this must not be him, right? This must not be the one sent from God. Things went downhill from there. Uh, eventually, when Christ died, even Peter and the other 12 in, in Jesus' inner circle, every single one of his followers had denied him, had left him, and said, that, That's, that guy's not it. Right? It was only after he rose again and appeared to them and some, some you know, 500-ish other eyewitnesses that they realized, yes, that's it. He said he was going to do it. He is the Messiah. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. After Christ's resurrection, the third part of the mystery, after Christ's resurrection, the disciples came to him as we see at the beginning of the book of Acts, um, and they say to him, they, they basically ask him, okay, is this it? You know, you died, you paid for our sins, you rose again, you're powerful, you are the son of God. Um, is this, you know, we were doubtful for approximately three days, but now we know that you're the Messiah, right? Um, is, this, is this the time that you're going to now take your throne once and for all? Um, and Jesus said, no, uh, that day has not yet come. Uh, that was the first aspect of this part of the mystery, that these things weren't going to happen all at once like they had expected. The second aspect of this part of the mystery, though, is the task that Jesus gave them to do. He told them to go now and make disciples of all nations. You might have heard uh, this verse from John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a famous one. Uh, it's where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus' plan all along was to extend salvation across the whole world, which wasn't new. Right? But what was new uh, was the means by which this salvation was offered through belief in Jesus. And this is the kicker. Right? This is the new news. The Israelites had thought that Christ would establish a kingdom. He would take his throne, establish a kingdom that would be united under the law of Moses, that outsiders would be welcomed. Um, the Gentiles, all those who weren't God's chosen people, would be welcomed by placing themselves under uh, the Mosaic law. But what Christ offered was better. And he said, you're not going to be united by the law, uh, which was external. They would, they would be united in Christ himself, internally, by faith. The book of Hebrews calls it a new and better way. Not the law, but faith in Christ alone. And now Jesus, the new and better way, has sent them on a mission of proclaiming this new news of salvation until that one day in the future when Christ will come again 
for his newly united people. And that is that, that little, that second part of that third part of the mystery is the core, the shattering core uh, of the mystery that has now been revealed. The stewardship from God that was given to Paul uh, to explain to you this, this Gentile church, predominantly Gentile church in Colossae, uh, the fulfillment of God's plan came by the offer of union with Christ by faith in Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 27, to his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, God's people have been united together as one new people because they've been united in Christ himself. Christ's offer to them is himself accessible by grace through faith. And Paul's task has been to make this reality, this this thing that was once a a mystery but is now revealed His task is to make this reality fully known so that all people would understand that we now have all that we need. Christ's work of salvation is complete and all that is left for us to do while we wait for his return is to proclaim this message to all. And it's a bold claim. Um, It was a bold claim. It is still a bold claim, but it's true. We don't need anything else because the mystery of Christ has been fully revealed. In Christ, you have all that you need is what Paul is saying. He doesn't stop there, though. Sounds great, but Paul doesn't stop there. Look with me at verse 28. Paul says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul turns to giving them a word of warning, and in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And let's talk about this uh, for just a minute. Rather than simply saying this mystery has been revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and then finishing with something like keep your faith in that, which is all you need. Rather than finishing that way, Paul turns and pauses to warn them. Now, why would he do this? Um, I think it's because he's aware of a danger, something that's both external and internal that he wants this church uh, in Colossae to know about. And so let's look at the external danger and the internal danger, and then we'll talk a little bit about what they have to do with each other. With respect to the external danger that Paul's warning them about, it'd be good here to remember uh, the reason why Paul is writing this letter, this, this, the book of Colossians, is, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. It'd be good to remember why he wrote it in the first place. This, this church is not one that he planted himself. Um, he, did, he had never seen them face to face. This church was planted by a, a fellow servant named Epaphras, uh, Epaphras. Um, is probably how you actually say that. Uh, he's writing this letter because Epaphras has, has likely sent to him asking for help to address a problem of false teaching which has arisen in the church. His reference to those who are making plausible arguments in chapter 2, verse 4, is the first explicit address of these false teachers. And while it's hard to piece together exactly what these false teachers are saying uh, and teaching because Paul never quotes them, uh, quotes what they're saying, uh, we can generally understand from how it's referred to here and in other places in this letter uh, that they're teaching, these false teachers are teaching some combination of Greco-Roman philosophy, Jewish mysticism, and Christianity kind of all together in the same stew. Uh, and they're not doing it. We, we gather that they're not doing it in, a way that's, it in a way that's obviously wrong. They're doing it by making plausible arguments, uh, things that sound like they could make sense. Which brings us uh, to the internal danger that Paul is aware of. When, when Paul refers to the fact that they're in danger of being deluded by plausible arguments from without, he's pointing them uh, to, to the fact that there is a heart issue within them that makes them susceptible to being deluded. 
right? And this heart issue that Paul saw in the Colossians is true of all of us even today, right? The root uh, issue, the issue is that we are uh, at a kind of at a root level dissatisfied. We are constantly dissatisfied. In other words, whenever we have something, right, no matter how great it is, uh, the default mode of our hearts and minds is that we always want more. Um, we are constantly dissatisfied. The reason we're all too prone to fall victim to the latest plausible argument is that we're looking for it. Right? We want something else, something different, something new. Um, and that is because in, in our hearts we are dissatisfied. If you think about it, uh, if you have an older iPhone, um, what was the first thought that came into your mind last month when the iPhone 7 was released? Uh, maybe you're a better person than I am, uh, but my mind immediately said, I want that. Right? I want the new iPhone. Um, I remember being satisfied. I remember being excited when I got the, the iPhone that I currently have. Um, but when the 7 came out, all of a sudden it seemed less satisfying. If I'm honest, though, it didn't take a new iPhone to come out to do that. It wasn't a week after I got the iPhone that I currently have that I started dreaming about the next thing, right? You see, the reason our minds wander to the what-ifs uh, of, of a different phone, right, a different job, uh, a different husband or wife, a different house, a different car, different kids, uh, a different place to live, the reason our minds wander to these things is because we are at our root prone to dissatisfaction. And this isn't new. It's not new. The Bible says that this actually uh, comes out of the very first sin, which was, a, which, was as a res- which was a result of the temptation of dissatisfaction. Adam and Eve, Genesis, the, the early chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tell uh, how the story of how sin entered the world. Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, had been given everything in the world except this one tree in the middle of the garden. Um, they had all that they could possibly have wanted, but then when they were tempted by the serpent, what did the serpent do? Did he point at everything that they had and said, hey, look, this isn't good enough? No, he pointed at the one thing that they didn't have um, and said, don't you want that? Right? The temptation uh, that Adam and Eve faced was, was dissatisfaction. They were tempted to be dissatisfied with what God had provided for them. Um, and that, is, that led to the first sin, which is the origin of all sin, uh, according to the story of the Bible, um, how sin entered the world. And then as we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, uh, throughout history, we see these cycles of people being satisfied for a moment, then seeing something else that looks good and trying to chase that. Um, it was true all throughout biblical, uh, biblical history. It's true even today. The external problem that the Colossians faced was false teaching. And the internal problem that they faced was dissatisfaction. And when a plausible argument meets a dissatisfied heart, problems arise. Let me dig a little bit deeper uh, to see if I can make practical sense of this for us. There's a name for what the false teachers were doing at Colossae. Um, the name for what they were doing was, is called syncretism. And bear with me uh, here. I think this is crucial for us to understand because I think it's incredibly applicable to us today. Syncretism is essentially mixing and matching from different philosophies and religions uh, to create something new. Let me explain it this way. Uh, I haven't eaten at TGI Fridays in a long time, uh, but maybe you've seen this advertisement too. Now they offer endless appetizers. Um, I don't know if it's a new thing, but they offer endless appetizers, which my understanding means that you can go, and as long as you keep eating, they'll keep, you can have as many appetizers as you want. Um, that's what endless means to me. Um, and uh, usually, though, when you go to a restaurant, um, you pick one meal, you might get an appetizer, you might get a dessert, um, and what you order is what you get. Right? That's how restaurants usually work. What TGI Fridays has hit on, though, uh, is brilliant. 
right? It's hard for people to choose just one, so they started offering endless appetizers so you can get a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not being limited to just one thing, right? With food, this is called endless appetizers, right? Uh, and I think it's brilliant. It's a fantastic idea that displays a pretty good understanding of human desires. Uh, with religion, though, it's called syncretism. And regardless of how plausible it might seem, Paul warns against living in this delusion. To, this, to the dissatisfied heart, syncretism is always appealing because it's based on the premise that you can have the best of both worlds, which is better than the one that you're currently living in. Right? Deep down, we know that this is not possible, which is why when someone says, man, come on, you can't have your cake and eat it too, we know what that person's talking about. Right? Deep down, we know this isn't possible. With the Colossians, uh, the words that Paul uses show the kind of syncretism that he's addressing. Right? Last week, uh, the, uh, Brandon preached about how Paul uses words to establish Christ as authoritative over all kinds of spirits, kind of spe speaking against Jewish mysticism uh, that they were teaching. In this week's text, um, it appears as though the false teachers are also mixing in some aspect of higher knowledge attainable only to the few who are able to grasp it. Um, probably Gnosticism from, from Greco-Roman philosophy. He combats, Paul combats this idea of higher knowledge attainable by a select few uh, in a number of ways. Uh, he does it by emphasizing that this message is for everyone, which he repeats, it's a word he repeats three times in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So he established there's not some elite group of, of people who know. There's this, not elite, this elite few who, are, who have access to this special knowledge. This message is for everyone. And he also uses absolute language throughout our text to talk about, uh, to talk about the wisdom and knowledge that Christ offers. He says uh, he's, he's, he's laboring to make the word of Christ fully known. Uh, he's teaching with all wisdom. He's, the mystery is Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. So Paul's teaching against this kind of syncretism. Um, that was then, but even now, 2,000 years later, syncretism <clears throat> hasn't disappeared. Uh, it's still very much alive. It's so easy uh, to take uh, from Christianity what you like, discard, discarding what you don't like, and filling in the blank with whatever seems most plausible uh, at any given moment. For example, if you like what the Bible says about an all-powerful, loving God, uh, but you don't like the exclusive claims in the Bible that talk about God's judgment for sinners, um, you can borrow the idea that all religions worship the same God uh, uh, from somewhere else and say that Christianity is one way and that God, because he's loving, will accept all forms of worship, whether Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, even atheist. Um, and this is a religious belief. Um, it's just not Christianity. And that's an overt example of syncretism, but it can also be much more under the surface than that. Let me illustrate this for us with just one example. Many Christians today, though they might not say this out loud, live as though they received the gospel when they were saved, but that now the gospel is just for people who are not yet Christian. All right, let me explain what I mean. Uh, this comes from a form of syncretism that blends Christianity with what's called deism. Uh, deism is a belief that there is a God who created everything, but that that God is completely transcendent, completely detached. Um, so he created all things, or she, he or she, created all things, um, and then left the universe uh, kind of to itself to, to progress and unfold as it would. Right, that's deism. When you mix Christianity with deism, you can get the idea that, that God created all things, 
Uh, you can get the idea that God might interfere, sending, sending his son to die and pay for our sins. You might even be able to get that God interfered in your life, uh, playing an active role in your individual experience of salvation. Uh, but that's it. Right? When you received the gospel, that was a one and done thing. Now, for the rest of your life, God wants you to be a very careful steward of the gospel, sharing it with others who don't have it yet, uh, which is a process that he leaves mostly uh, pretty much up to you. In other words, believing the gospel was like a heart transplant that happened one day in the past, and now as a saved person, God's left you to take good care of your body so that you don't waste this good gift. All right, and here's the thing about all that. It's not all wrong, right? In fact, it can sound quite plausible. See, according to Christianity, salvation is a one-and-done thing for you. Uh, to borrow a word that Paul uses elsewhere, uh, once you're justified in Christ, you can never lose your justification. Also, comparing salvation to a heart transplant is a great way to think about salvation because it's straight out of the Bible. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, describes salvation this way. It says, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a heart transplant, right? But here's the problem. Uh, you can believe those things and at the same time believe that God is not active in your life right now that you don't need the gospel anymore because you already have it, right? You can believe those things and believe that you've reached full maturity because you received the gospel, past tense, and now you're just supposed to share it with others, right? And that's not Christianity, right? Paul addresses that point head on in our text. He says that this message is for everyone. Notice what Paul doesn't say in verse 28. He doesn't say, him we proclaim, warning and teaching those who haven't heard about this yet, so that we can one day present those people mature in Christ like those of us who already have Christ, already are. No, he doesn't say those people. He says everyone. Christ is proclaimed to everyone, strong Christians, new Christians, and non-Christians alike, calling people to initial faith and repentance, but also calling to an ongoing process of growing faith and repentance and joy as we pursue maturity in Christ. In other words, if you're alive right now, then God's work in your life is not yet complete, right? If you're alive right now, then God is not done with you. To the one whose heart is dissatisfied with resting in God's work, uh, to the heart that really wants to have a little bit of comfortable control over your life, this version of syncretism might sound awfully appealing. Right? There's many other examples I could give, uh, but suffice it to say this. Syncretism is appealing to the dissatisfied heart, and Paul's warning against delusion by plausible arguments rings as true today as it did for his original hearers. But here's the thing. You see, Paul, uh, Paul could proclaim this. Right? He could warn them uh, about syncretism, but even if he argues his point incredibly well, that will not ultimately fix the problem because it only addresses the external issue. It's only another plausible argument. Think about it. How many times in our lives have we said, I used to think that way, but then I figured this out, and now I think this way. What does it mean when we say that? That means that one day <clears throat> we thought this was plausible, then we learned something new, uh, or heard something new and more plausible, and now we believe something else. Listen, sometimes that's fine. We, that, that's fine. we live our lives uh, based on a, a shifting understanding of what's plausible uh, and what's not, but if you start asking big questions, uh, like what is the point of my life? Right? Who is God? Uh, the plausibility, the, the way that we decide what is plausible and what's not becomes a little bit more complicated and a little bit more important. In this text, Paul is calling us to nothing less than full assurance of understanding. As he says in chapter 2, verse 2, 
And this resonates with us, right? We want to be satisfied. We want to be assured of what we know, right? But because our dissatisfaction is internal, mere proclamation, uh, which is external, is ineffective. Right? Proclamation, uh, to be sure, nothing is effective without proclamation, which is why Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim. Right? But proclamation won't get us all the way there. You see, our problem with, uh, is not primarily that there are plausible delusions out there. It's that internally, we are dissatisfied. Internally, we always want more than what we have. Right? And if we're left on our own, we will always be looking for the new, more plausible thing. If our internal problem is not dealt with, then we will truly just be at the whim of the most eloquent argument, the most eloquent speaker or writer. Let's keep reading. We've looked at the mystery that's been revealed in Christ. We've looked at the inability uh, by ourselves to grasp the truth of the gospel with any sense of assurance. And now, uh, I think we're going to see that God does not leave us on our own in our weakness. Let's look at verse 29. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The first thing we notice here um, is that the wording that Paul uses is deeply significant. He doesn't mince his words. Paul doesn't say, for this I toil with all of this energy that God has given me. Paul doesn't say that. He says, for this I toil with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's ministry is entirely dependent upon the powerful work of God in and through him. He doesn't say, I spent my energy, then I had to dip into God's strength in order to finish the task. No, he doesn't speak of those two things separately. His energy is God's energy, which is working through him. Elsewhere in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 4, says, Paul says this. You might recognize these words. Paul says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Right? My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this is huge. Right, Paul acknowledges here that the strength and power of his ministry comes not from himself, but from the Lord who is working through him, both to grant him the energy he needs to complete his ministry and also to provide the power necessary for the word of Christ to actually become fully known for his hearers. See, for Paul to merely proclaim the mystery of Christ would have simply been providing the Colossians with another plausible argument. Right, but proclamation tied to real power is what has the ability to truly bring about change. Let's read on. Chapter two, verse one, we see that Paul's struggle for the Colossians um, and for all those he hasn't seen face to face is because of this, verse two. So that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Let me trace the flow of thought here briefly. The purpose of Paul's great concern for this church The purpose for Paul's great concern for the Colossians, his great struggle, is that their hearts may be encouraged. This is more than simply comfort. Encouragement and comfort have a lot to do with one another. But when when Paul says he wants their hearts to be encouraged, this encouragement involves a more active sense of empowerment. His struggle is to see them empowered to pursue one another as they are being knit together in love. And this brings us to one of the key ideas, I think, that Paul is driving at in this section. Right? Being encouraged in their hearts will necessarily involve their being bound together in Christian love. And it is this love, love for one another, 
that is the means by which they are to finish verse two. It's the means by which they are to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. It is only through love for one another that Christians will reach this full maturity and knowledge uh, that God has designed for us, that God has intended for us. In other words, um, one theologian put it this way. He said, against all those who tried to intellectualize the Christian faith, against all those who tried to intellectualize the Christian faith, speaking of knowledge, gnosis, as if it were an end in itself, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. Right, this is as important for us to hear today as it was for Paul's original hearers. When Paul says that he desires to present everyone mature in Christ, he's not talking about intellectual pursuit or some level of knowledge that some people have and other people don't. Uh, intellectual pursuit can be a good thing. Pursuing knowledge can be a good thing, but what is of central importance is the cultivation of love among brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no category in the Bible, we say this all the time at Sojourn, there's no category in the Bible for the Christian life lived in isolation. And here, we are explicitly reminded that this is because God makes his revelation accessible to us as we are being knit together in love. In fact, not only is love for one another crucial for reaching full assurance uh, and full knowledge and wisdom, but there is also an inseparability between Paul pointing the Colossians towards one another and pointing them to Christ himself. Let me explain. After Jesus was resurrected, uh, after he rose from the dead, right before he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he said these words, which are known as the Great Commission. Uh, you might have heard them. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said this. He said to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. For a long time, uh, I thought that that last phrase, uh, that Jesus would be with us to the end of the age, uh, was just a spiritual thing, right? That we're never alone because God is always with us in spirit. Then I came across this idea, which, which is here in the writings of Paul. It's also throughout the New Testament. Um, while it's not untrue that God is always with us in spirit, given what it means to be united with Christ, as Paul says, Christ in you, uh, in verse 27. While it's not untrue that God is always with us in spirit, Paul also doesn't limit Christ's presence with us simply to the spiritual realm. Right? At the end of Colossians 1, verse 24, Paul understands the church to be the body of Christ. He doesn't say the church is like the body of Christ. He understands the church to literally be the body of Christ in the world. And in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul clearly links being knit together in love with reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. So for Paul, as God binds us together in love with one another, he is, in doing so, binding us together with Christ. The two things are not the same, but clearly they are here uh, and elsewhere in the New Testament. They are inseparable. As God binds us together with one another, he binds us together with himself. And lest his hearers think that he's simply calling them to something else they must do in order to please God, Paul uses the passive sense of the verb to knit together in verse 2 to explain that they are being knit together in love rather than doing this themselves. He essentially says, Listen, this work of God building his people together is a work that was begun 
that is being continued and that will ultimately be brought to completion by the work of God himself through his Holy Spirit as he knits his people together. And to finish off his line of reasoning, Paul ends this sentence with what he has been driving at this whole time. His goal is to point people nowhere but to Christ himself. Verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This for Paul is the gospel. This is what Paul has been toiling and struggling to tell the Colossians. The gospel is not ultimately some system of thought, some treasury of knowledge, some set of principles to live by. The gospel is a person, Jesus Christ himself. Paul points them to Christ, knowing that it is only through faith in Christ, through laying the weight of their lives on Christ, that they will reach full knowledge, that they will reach full assurance, they will reach full maturity that God has intended for them. The sum and total of the Christian gospel is found in Christ himself. This is the mystery of our faith. Not merely another plausible system of thought or knowledge, but God himself who took on flesh, becoming a man to die a shameful death for our sins, revealing this wonderful mystery of salvation, rising again from the dead in a demonstration of his power and promising to return for a distracted, often dissatisfied people who he is powerfully knitting together in love as they eagerly anticipate his return together, right? As we dig in deeper, and as we dig in deeper to Christ each day pursuing him, we are offered complete satisfaction because with God's help, we will never exhaust all the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom, uh, his infinite knowledge and wisdom that are stored up in Christ for us. In Christ, we truly have all that we need. In Christ, we have all that we need. How then do we live in light of all that we've talked about? Um, I think the most practical call, the most practical call from this text is this. Lean into community, knowing that in so doing, you are leaning into Christ who reveals himself to us through love. Lean into community. If you're a Christian, whether you're brand new or whether you've read through the Bible a hundred times, lean into the body of Christ, knowing that God is not done with you yet. Right, that as you pursue spiritual maturity, you need look nowhere else but to Christ himself who is revealing himself to you as he knits you together in love with the saints. Right, and if you, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, if you're somewhere and you, don't, you haven't placed your foot down on what you believe, know that God is not done with you yet either. Right? In fact, God's plan is to reveal himself, uh, his plan to reveal himself to you is in part through the people in this room. And listen, if you've been hurt by Christians, If you've been hurt by the church, if you've been even hurt by anything that I've said this morning, I'm truly sorry. I'm not perfect. Um, The church is not perfect. But what we do is we cling to a perfect God who is powerfully knitting us together in love, who is revealing himself to us and through us despite us. And so please, I think it's no accident that you're here this morning. Lean in and maybe, just maybe, his offer to you will become both beautiful and true as we lean in and ask God together. Finally, look at the end of verse 21, uh, excuse me, look at the end of verse 27 with me. Paul has been talking about this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you were to ask what the distinguishing marker of the Christian life is, this is it, hope. The distinguishing marker of the Christian life is hope. There's certainly many other things that will mark the Christian life, right? 
just one of those things which we haven't talked about a great deal today, but it's important even in our text, um, is suffering. In Colossians 1, 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Right, Paul is touching here on the fact, not that somehow Christ's afflictions were, were, uh, were incomplete in terms of securing our salvation, but that the future suffering of his servants, like Paul, uh, and others who would take and, and share his gospel around the world was not yet complete. See, but even though suffering will mark the Christian life, it only ever serves to reorient and even bolster what is truly central, our hope in what is to come. It is our hope in what is to come that helps us to press on, even rejoicing in our suffering as we see God bearing fruit in and among us. It is our hope in the fact that God can bring about real change that helps us to press into community, even with people who are not easy to be in community with, because we know that God uh, can knit together in love two hateful enemies like he did with us and himself. In inviting us to place our faith in Christ and in providing the power and means by which to do so, God offers us himself, Christ in us, the hope of glory. This mystery has been revealed and because our hearts are prone to wander and search for satisfaction in other things, God gave us himself to ensure that his people would come to full assurance of understanding of who Christ is. And Christ in us is our secure and eternal hope. As we look forward to that day uh, when Christ returns and he greets us with a smile, welcoming us into all the rest of eternity with him, uh, in which we will find our true and final satisfaction. Um, all we have is Christ, like we sang earlier. All we have is Christ, and in Christ, we have more than enough. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word, uh, for revealing yourself to us in it. Uh, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit, for having your, your, your followers wait until they were clothed with power from on high before they began this ministry that you called them to. Because Lord, all that we do and say um, uh, pertaining to your gospel is powerless without you. Um, I pray that you would fill us up uh, in this room. I pray for every single person in this room that as we kind of think about what it is that you've presented to us in your word, um, that you would guard and guide our hearts as we pursue unity with one another, in unity with you. God, I pray, uh, I pray for wisdom and protection that, um, that if we are believing some combination of Christianity and anything else, uh, that you would reveal that for what it is, uh, false, and root us firmly in the one true gospel, Christ himself. I pray that you'd be with us, uh, knowing that you are with us to the end of the age, and we look uh, forward to that day when you will return. Help fix our eyes uh, with hope on the day that you will return uh, for your people. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.